Movement Rio Media presents A Few Good Physios with Dr. Eric Munoz and Dr. Leonidas Scantolides. You can't handle the truth. What is physical therapy? More research. More research. True therapeutic effect. Join us each week as we discuss current trends in medicine, rehabilitation, and strength and conditioning. The answers are out there. All content is a collaboration between On Point Sports Care and Integrated PT Squared. A Few Good Physios is not medical advice and is used for educational purposes only. If you are having pain and or health-related complaints, please seek out a licensed healthcare professional. Thank you for downloading. Enjoy. All right, with that, <clears throat> episode four. Episode four. This is our first clinical commentary going into the lumbar spine. Um, but before we get to that, Eric, how was your weekend? It was, uh, it was an interesting weekend. Mm. Uh, I took a continuing education course, um, FRC. Uh, for those of you who don't know what FRC is, uh, I'll have Lee going on in-depth uh, mm in-depth explanation, but it was a really cool course. Um, FRC stands for Functional Range Conditioning. Uh, it was created by Andrew Spina. Andrew Spina. Andrew Spina. <clears throat> um, uh, really cool system uh, looking at looking at mobility. And um, it, the way they were selling it and the way you know I understand it is there isn't really a system that has been dedicated toward mobility and you know they had their own description of mobility which uh definitely gels with uh my understanding my clinical and fitness experience but it was it was a really cool course um and i hope to incorporate it but you know a couple of things came up going back to the last couple of episodes uh the last one in particular uh fitness industry and physical therapy and there were some physical therapists there, um, as well as trainers, uh, strength and conditioning coaches. And it was really cool to see. I mean, you're really seeing uh, the top of the food chain, or at least people that are striving to be at the top of the food chain um, in fitness. And Lee has been telling me about this for years. And I could see why he's incorporated in his practice, both in his personal practice and his uh, private practice with clients and patients. Mm -hmm. um, but really, a couple of key things stuck out, and it was how far the fitness industry has gone, come and, and how the line between fitness and physical therapy or rehab are now, uh, much, this, that line is really disappearing. Um, and one of the key things, one of the a quote from this uh, course was, the presenter said, hey, I really want to spread this message that mobility, you know, if taught to your patients and clients can really be done alone or on their own. And, and honestly... I'm looking to put the rehab guys out of business. And, <laughs> you know, physical therapists, you know, tune in. These uh, fitness industry is definitely seeping into the industry, um, and they're doing it quite efficiently. And, mm. the, you know, to this guy's defense, he's, his thing is if we can get people, we can get clients, patients, grandmothers, athletes to withstand different stresses through increased mobility, strength, and control um, – they won't get injured as much. So mm -hmm. they, he, he, you know, in the literature that he was presenting, there was injury prevention, and he said that that has to change. 
you know, injuries are inevitable. No one, mm-hmm. we don't know whether it's going to prevent an injury, but it, injury mitigation or risk mitigation in movement. So, uh, not to delve into this, I, I want if Lee could elaborate a little on his experience because I'm relatively new to FRC mm-hmm. outside of using it on myself. I don't use it on many clients or patients. The little that I do use has been very effective, but now I'm, I'm very eager to go out and play. But why don't uh, Lee, why don't you share your experience with FRC? Yeah. No, and, and a quick side note, too. Um, I did you know, quickly comment on what the guy said. Yeah. Uh, and he was a trainer. He, yes. He, wasn't he a was a trainer. He's not a clinician. He was a trainer. He actually trains uh, pro athletes, pro fighters, and private clients, just general population. Yeah. So, I mean, 100%. We already talked about it. 100% agree with that. Um, interesting that... At the part-time gig that I work at, there is a therapist who was scheduled to go to a physical therapy course in a couple of weeks. I'm not going to show. I don't know what course it was. I'm not going to go into detail where it was, but this therapist had to block out time, put in PTO, and it's only two weeks away. Guess what happened to the course? Not enough people. Exactly. Uh, Not enough people. And it was just, it was really weird because I had just, was texting you back and forth about the FRC. And then she got really upset in the break room. And then she explained why. And I was like, wow, I wonder how many times that's going to happen now. And and there's, with the introduction to pain science, with things like this, there's no, there's, there's, uh, it kind of all connects. It all ties in. And uh, I found it very interesting because there is a threat now with manual therapy courses right. because some of the people we've mentioned in previous podcasts, uh, the people who are in our field, leading our field, either in research or on social media, they do say there's not sufficient evidence for certain things that we're doing or certain things are happening that are different than we thought during manual therapy versus what's being taught that's actually happening. Right. And that has to do with pain science and neuroscience. So this, these two things are interesting. You'll with FRC courses. You're uh, every course that I look up online. It's hard for me to be like, oh, I'm going to go to this. One. Oh, it's sold out. Oh, I want to tell you, I'm just on a, not to yeah. cut you off. No, no. Uh, paid about nine hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. There was um, probably fifty to sixty people in a CrossFit gym. Mm-hmm. No chairs. Do the math. No, no mm-hmm. chairs. No. Plinths, no fold-out tables. People were sitting on the. People were eager to be the people traveling from Pennsylvania. Met a guy from Singapore that mm-hmm. Jordan met. Um, so yeah, people traveled to come to this course, and it yeah. was sold out two, three months after it was posted. And that, that's been the theme for SFG. When I try to sign up for SFG things, or I've attended recent SFG events, and SFG is strong first. They have always been sold out, and when you go to an SFG course and you're doing your level one, you're paying like $1,700 for your level ones, three days. You know how many people go? It's nearly 80 people for large events, and you do the math on that, and with the instructors there, I have no idea what the numbers are with what they get paid, but they're coming out on top. They're coming out on top. And <clears throat> I haven't taken, uh, the last manual course I took was a NIAM course a couple of years ago, and it wasn't as big, and it's probably about like $500 or something like that. Yeah, it's cheaper and not as well attended. But mm. I think the, another thing to notice about that room, uh, fitness presentation, is the amount of passion, enthusiasm that the, the, this group brings. You know, I, mm. I saw a lot of familiar faces 
there, and all of them, I would say, are at top. The five people that I knew there are definitely at the top of their field, whether it's mm. physical therapy, the guys you put me on to, or training. Yeah. Um, but the passion, right, that enthusiasm mm. toward what they're doing, that translates into, I mean, even the presenter said, hey, everybody in this room, if you shelled out X amount of dollars and you gave up your weekend, mm-hmm. you're obviously doing something different than other right. people. Exactly. So it was it was pretty, it reminds me how much, um, what I've missed in the last few years in terms of continuing education. And uh, I look forward to, uh, t- Strong First is going to be another one I have mm-hmm. to chase down. I'm following this gentleman here, but um, really, really cool weekend. And again, you know, uh, to those of you in the physical therapy industry that um, kind of may may look down at the fitness industry, look out. Yeah. They're taking your jobs. <laughs> look, look to your right and left. Don't right. look down. <laughs> They're right next to you. Exactly. Uh, look up. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, when I took it, I took the uh, FRC Mobility Specialist, I think it was 2016, maybe 2015. Uh, but I loved it. I loved it because, uh, well, first of all, Spina, he's the one who taught that back then. And he had such a uh, really uh, charismatic way of explaining everything, and he was he used really good science. I understood it sense. from a background and from a physical therapist, but he also explained it for trainers, and uh, I, I thought it was really good. And then when we started getting the lab portions, I was so impressed by the movements that we were doing and then what would happen afterwards. For for one example, I had never been able just because of my hips. I, I've both of my hips are a little, <clears throat> you know, I won't go into too much detail, but they're not great. Only because I, when, at my Taekwondo background, I did a, like, you know, there's some practices we would do thousands and thousands of kicks. So there's a lot of um, wear on them, but that I take care of them through stretching and, and movement and stuff like that. But with that, I had never been able to do like a traditional pigeon pose for, from yoga. And it's not a significant thing. It's just something that I always found interesting because I always be able to do splits, things like that. Never be able to do pigeon pose. So right after the course, um, we were manage- managers at the clinic, and I was talking to um, our team at the location that I worked, and I was trying to explain to them what we did, and I wanted to give them like a quick example. And I was like, well, we went into a 90-90 stretch, and I was explaining pails and rails, and I showed them a couple rounds. And I was like, you know, you, this can apply to people who want to do like a pigeon pose or whatever it is. And so I go into the pigeon pose position, and I literally just sat into it and not even knowing that I was in it. And I was able to do no hands, and I was like totally dumbfounded by the fact that I could sit in the pigeon pose. I did it on both sides. So it was really weird. It was like it, it all of a sudden just kind of unlocked my nervous system a little bit and and uh, really put me in uh, a more efficient position and also allowed my tissues to do those positions that I was asking it to do. And that's what it really comes down to. And I, I'm still playing with it to this day, but I, I have like a – you know, when I do my clients or my patients, it's it's a whole system you have to go through carefully. Like, you know, you have to create a lot of tension for even the basic cars. Um, but just that idea of, of uh, training someone or teaching someone to do tension, create tension, that can take, you know, several sessions. So I just give them the movement first and I explain to them, like, we, as time goes on, you learn the skill better you'll be able to apply it at different levels. So like at the base level, you have a car, what's called a controlled articular rotation. Um, you'll be able to move the joint, whatever it is, and trying to get that joint, let's say your shoulder, get your glenohumeral joint to be separate from your scapular thoracic, separate from your 
uh, clavicular uh, joint and everything like that. And then you start to add tension and then you can start to really get into solid mobility and solid strength. So like things like that have a huge carryover for the nervous system, have huge stimulation for the tissues in general. And you keep doing things, you add on the pails and rails. And uh, for those who aren't familiar, the pails is progressive angular isometric loading and then the rails is regressive so on and so forth um, and that's when you start to get into the real nervous system stimulation now you're putting the joint in a, a position of compromise and or stretch um, and or a limitation that is non-painful it shouldn't be painful that was one thing that they really emphasized especially with the shoulder and the hip constantly disclaimers <clears throat> on pain mm-hmm. um, not you know not pushing too past your limits and also, they were really good about creating boundaries and saying, hey, guys, if something's really, none of this stuff should hurt, mm-hmm. you should refer out. If you're mm-hmm. not a you know, medical professional, you should be referring this out. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they were really good about, as Lee said, um, tying in the science. And when the science was <clears> shaky, <throat> they actually would bring up the science is shaky here, but, you know, this is what, you know, they they always had an explanation or said, hey, clinically this works. We're not sure. So it, right. it was pretty pretty well thought out mm-hmm. and definitely presented well um, and, and closed well, too. They had a lot of um, lab assistants. Mm-hmm. They had about eight people. Really? Six to eight people. Wow. People from Miami, people from – so it was a whole group there. That's great. And they went around. And, again, very enthusiastic, very um, happy to be there. And, it, you know, and it, it was a good – Overall, great experience, and I think, um, you know, I hope to be able to share it uh, with my pl- clients, patients, colleagues. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah. No, it's good. I mean, I do think also they had that, they started to add the kin stretch course, which yes. I want to take next. Yes. That, I think, is a game changer in the sense once people get educated on true mobility, true strength versus flexibility, that will give them an, give them an option where... I hear this a lot from the the general population when we see patients in the clinic. They're doing one of two things, not everybody, but a lot of people. They either run or do yoga. There's nothing wrong with those two individual things. But when done in not knowing what you're doing and how to progress and the intention, like for running, they're like, oh, I want to get in shape. For yoga, I need to get more flexible. Those two things they usually don't get the same results that they want. Yoga is is a fantastic practice, and it's usually geared towards increasing your mindfulness, increasing your mind-body connection, improving your breathing, definitely improving your flexibility, and sometimes improving your mobility if you know what you're doing, but usually it takes a very trained individual to do that, and or they have one-on-ones that can have that instructor pass on that quality information. But it's also, but on the other side of that, not everybody could do that, so they're usually generally taking classes that they don't get that personalized attention. Now, with running, people might have a lot of things going on. They might not be ready to run in terms of strength and the way the joints move and also their general health. And so then they start to jump into it a little too early, and they go too far, too fast, too soon. And then that's when other injuries prop up, and then, then it gets demonized, and it says right. running's bad for you. Running. And, and running, <clears throat> you know, people think of running as somewhat of a natural uh, form of exercise. Uh, the truth is, just like uh, anything else, it's a skill. It's a skill set. And mm-hmm. uh, I think, as Lee, you know, just to elaborate what Lee was saying, is um, people just say, well, I'm going to, you know, it's easy. 
put on a pair of sneakers, put on a pair of shorts, and I'm just going to run without all these prerequisites. I mean, whatever movement practice you choose, uh, there's typically prerequisites for movement, or there's not, and that's actually where we're Mm -hmm. coming in. Hopefully we could change that a bit, but um, there should be prerequisites. Just taking using FRC as an example, Mm -hmm. they had a prerequisite to move to the next level or why you would do a particular technique. Um, same situation with running, same situation with um, yoga. Mm-hmm. And I think the fitness individual, oh, the fitness industry in general, each, um, each trainer, each philosophy, each boutique place may have their own prerequisites. But that's the challenge, I think, for both the rehab community mm-hmm. and the fitness community is how do we come up with a system mm-hmm. that gives you prerequisites for movement, you know, for, for activity. Whether that's you know Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which mm-hmm. you know uh, that's a whole other that's game. a whole other ball game. But mm-hmm. you know, just something as simple as um, I don't know, as simple as running. But yeah, yeah. prerequisites yeah. for movement. Like, and you know what I love about the FRC two? You said system. This is that's one thing that I learned is that after I did it for like a year or so, I I you know I think you could say this for most movement things that come out. This this was nothing novel in the sense right. that um, being able to look attracted in ranges, put yourself in these end ranges. In terms of move, movement system, it's nothing novel. Martial artists, dancers, they've been doing this for thousands of years. But the key to that is there's been no kind of A to B to C system. What FRC does, it gives you that framework. Right. And from when when I took it, you know, speaking was like, here are cars, here are rails, here are pair, uh, uh, pails, here is uh, neural grooving and eccentric hovering. hovering. hovering and he said it. He's like, you don't have to go from one to two to three. He's like, but you should have certain prerequisites that are completed before you do this. So you can have someone do um, uh, a neural grooving there if they already can do this, this, and this. And now you, if you look on social media, everybody's taking it and then adapting that framework to their own thing. And then he he usually reposts it, and it's really cool stuff. And I said this to a patient who was familiar with both jujitsu and FRC, and he said to me, he's like, well, that's interesting. That's like jujitsu. And he was right. It was like you have this framework, and you have all these jujitsu practitioners coming up with so many different ways of doing things. And that's what makes it really complex. There's infinite ways to get out of the guard there's infinite ways to apply an omoplata there's infinite ways to get into a triangle so that that's really cool i I think that's when you see a system that people can take and apply the framework easily that's what makes uh, a a system that's going to be around for a long time and it's going to be effective because that framework is solid in whatever the purpose is and that's going to continue to happen that's why i love all the frc stuff because he he doesn't just have a frc mobility specialist he's got the uh, manual therapy course, the uh, functional release. Functional assessment. But, and then the FRA. And then he's got the kin stretch class. I mean, it'll, he'll probably have a, more classes as time goes on. Yeah, it's pretty um, It's good stuff. I mean, as you said, during the course, actually, um, <clears throat> there were some traditional strength and conditioning coaches there, and they were very interested in the programming, mm. and they wanted specifics. And, you know, the... the the presenters were really keen on saying, hey, this is, the f- yeah, maybe, maybe, it depends. You mm-hmm. know, that the, our favorite words, but mm-hmm. they said, guys, this is a framework. 
there should be a, some level of progression here, but it really depends on who's in front of you. Right. Um, <clears throat> whether it's a 600-pound squat or it's grandma trying to pick up the baby, you know, there's, there's going to be a different framework. But like you said, a framework, I don't know, a framework as opposed to a hard and fast absolute. Yeah. And, and some systems out there are somewhat absolute or claim to be absolute. So I think I think that's why this gelled with us so well. Mm-hmm. Similar to Strong First, right? Strong 100%. First very similar where they have these core component uh core movements that are kind of broken up into grinds and ballistic movements and grinds. Also Strong First has a lot about creating tension. Mm-hmm. Um really cool stuff. They yeah. both systems I feel really exploit the nervous system in some really interesting ways that as clinicians we have been exposed to from a neural perspective from a from a from some horrible rehab from stroke rehab for instance right. where um we're using a lot of that but it it's really interesting I, i've it's changed the way i do things definitely clinically as well as with my the general population training clients is pretty cool yeah that's no, really good um cool man yeah man I, that, was get, a, that was a quick take that class. yeah yeah definitely <laughs> glad it's um yeah i gotta get the social media going i took some pictures so <laughs> <laughs> every time be, i go to your page yeah it was, was like, like no post yet no he's down he's <laughs> out soon and soon. you have four might, followers like, i got four followers it's me and i got a cut on point sports care and equilibrium once i click on to you guys once i click on to you guys that's it man i'm gonna be famous in one day but we'll, I, we'll repost whatever you. Oh whatever man, you put whatever out. I put, maybe I just take a picture of this bottle. Like, <laughs> you good? You're uh, drinking water today. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, soon. Cool right. man. So uh, yeah, the clinical commentary. So what? One of the other purposes besides is talking about fitness and uh, trainers and talking shit about everybody <laughs> <laughs> is we want to give some good quality information about body parts of the general population, patients, and even to clinicians. Maybe might might help clinicians. Um, so today we want to discuss a little bit about the lumbar spine or the low back. Um, how common is low back pain? That was like the first question that came up with. Very common. So I think the numbers are seven out of 10. I think even higher. I mean, if you read like a common, if you read a, uh, I have, and if you see the video of this, you'll see me looking through, uh, part of our nightmare (laughs) to study for a test. Oh, Oh, here we go. Uh, it's different. Uh, different studies range from 26% all the way up to 80%. 80%. And I, I would agree with that 80% only because we see so many people in the clinic with low back pain. And then they kind of um, they distinguish it between uh, chronic and acute. But what was interesting to us, this it was the most common cause of disability and lost work time among Working age adults in industrialized countries. That was really scary. And those those studies, a, from what I remember, were it's recent. A, it's a billion-dollar um, loss mm-hmm. industry-wide. And that's productivity. Again, what you, Lee just mentioned. Uh, so it is a big issue that many entities right now, whether mm-hmm. they're governmental or private, are honing in on. And they know that, you know, it, it's one of the largest... Outside of heart attacks, diabetes, you know, lower back pain causes, you know, causes a lot of loss, let's right. put it that way. And that, yeah. I mean, that's from a, I guess, from a economic perspective, but you think of the patients that we see that have had chronic lower back pain or even acute lower back pain, the emotional toll on 
the mm. individual and the people around it. It's just pretty, pretty. It can be pretty significant and severe. Huge. And uh, just to distinguish between what is chronic, what is yes. acute. They define it, and we learned this in school, less than three months is acute. Or I, I would say, I, I remember acute was like two to, I think, maybe, I guess, two two weeks to four weeks. And then subacute was a little bit after that. And then greater than three months would be on the chronic side of it, especially with low back pain. The good news is, is the majority of low back pain, it recovers. Like, you're going to recover. You're going to get better, like, with any, mostly with anything else. Right. Time. Mm -hmm. Just without any intervention. Without any intervention. Time will usually heal. Many wounds. (laughs) And it was interesting that they, the analogy that they used in this text was it, it, it should be treated like a common cold. You get a cold, it passes, and you might get it treated, you might not. Um, but it's nothing really serious. And then when it when it is serious, the percentages of something serious happening, and we're talking about emergency medicine, we're talking about fractures, we're talking about cancer, we're talking about things that you need to go get um, a physician's intervention for, that's a very uncommon occurrence. We're talking 0 to 0.66% all the way up to 0.1% to 3.5%. Now, 0.666%, sorry, 0.66%, that's not, uh, that's a, that's even lower than the actual number. Do you know what I mean? The right. percentage has right. moved over a tenth of a point. It's, again, that's, yeah, it's very low that it's something very serious. Now, that being said, uh, perceptually, we, you know, and cognitively, when someone does encounter some acute lower back pain, it does feel very serious. Absolutely. Um, so not to diminish the severity of anybody's issue, but this is why, you know, as we'll talk about down the road here, uh, why people go to the why people go through the measures they do, mm-hmm. and, and uh, to find help, right. and, and often they want help. They want change immediately, and often something like um, like the common cold takes has to run its course. Right, and there, I think the reason why, like, in, and I had I was thinking about this on the other day because I had a patient who had an acute injury, and he said some really interesting things, and he definitely had a lot of fear in what he was saying, and you could see the look on his face. He was uh, this individual was a competitive powerlifter, had an incident while lifting. And what he said was right away was their colleague, their friend, well, it sounds like you have might have a, a herniated disc. That sounds like a herniated disc at your L4, and this person wasn't a clinician. Um, and that kind of pushed him to go get help. And um, after the examination, there most likely was a disc injury, but he didn't have any neuro symptoms. He didn't have any... Uh, huge restrictions. He was able to do most of the things they had him do. He cleared with his reflexes. He cleared with all his myotones, which are just like looking for frank motor weakness. So in terms of a severe neurological damage or something like an annular tear that would require some recovery time, um, I tried to explain that you know, here's here's the probability of you having this injury versus something you need to stop doing movement. You need to kind of do only these specific things for the next couple of weeks versus this is how you're presenting. So he he felt a lot better and he, he found you could see his whole face changed. He looked hopeful. He actually said that where he's like, I feel more hopeful. I could compete again, stuff like that. And a younger person. And um, 
I, I, I let him know like it's always you have to feel things out when you talk to someone who's in pain because they might not be able to take in everything you give them so you only give little small doses here and there so I give them um, things that they could do now and they should be able to do almost everything but just to a, a lesser extent you know obviously right. I didn't say like, oh go go lift a hundred percent of you were doing before no you just you let them know that they can continue moving if they're able to do it without making things worse you just reduce the load if not take away the load completely let that let the body just recover next couple of weeks come back let's check it out again if things are going in the right direction then you can start to get the load back on carefully progressively things like that so that's a big – the mindset, I think, is a big change. The mindset. What, what Lee just said, I think, occurred in the last couple of weeks. Uh, a couple of new clients that I've been – patients I've been working with mm. that have had, you know, chronic lower back pain, chronic hip pain. And after our, you know, after our initial evaluation, the word hopeful was used. Mm. And, uh, and I asked, so what, what's different? And so, well, I'm not as – I'm not as scared about – what the outcome is and I think to all your clinicians that are listening right now if you know I think it's it's our job really to decrease cl- patients fear when they walk through that door every most patients that come through the door are going to have some fear about their condition about what their experience is and and mm-hmm. I think it's 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 essential that all of us as clinicians are able to dispel the myths of what they're going through number mm-hmm. one Secondly, inform them, and and again, not to diminish or not to diminish them, or mm-hmm. not to. You have to be prudent. I always, the, within a certain context, I do review red flags and explain what red flags are and what would be considered a medical emergency. Right. Um, but outside mm-hmm. of that, exactly what Lee said. You know, just maybe modify their activity. It doesn't need. It does not mean they cease their activity. Or mm-hmm. since they have this, let's say herniated disc or let's say they have this back pain wow does this mean that i can never run i i the mm. absolute terms are, are rarely used and, and even mm. in some severe cases of people with amputations cancer i mean some horrible stuff people bounce back the yeah. body heals so Absolutely. your patients should be telling you at some point somebody should within the week you should hear it at least once or twice if someone's new yeah. that I am now hopeful because, right. um, you know, I, I do believe that's part of what we do. That's huge. And and now that incorporating pain science, I think there's been the most done, most work done on low back pain. Yes. And we talked about him before, Peter O'Sullivan. Um, he just came out with an incredible compilation of his system, which is CFT, or hmm. Cognitive Functional Therapy. Hmm. And if that sounds familiar, if you think of CBT... Cognitive yes. behavioral therapy. He that's what exactly what he was thinking when he created it, apparently. But basically you're trying to shift this mind of fearing what would you know, through what research is and what he's finding, what he's presenting and um also what he's trying to say what's causing more disability in the low back is the fact that they fear movement and they fear um, injuring the low back further under false pretenses. Yes. So by introducing the fact that those movements that are once thought as injuring the back are no are not the case. First of all, it's a myth. It's a myth when you go bend and touch your toes and you don't bend your knees and you let your back round that you're hurting your discs, you're hurting back. That's a complete myth. They've actually showed the contrary. It's completely healthy 
for you to do that. They've even showed that lifting like that has been fine for the disc. They'll they'll put needles in there and they'll measure the pressure and things like that. People who are, are able to um, who volunteer for this study, I don't know who they are, but <laughs> it, it probably Thank you. Was, it probably wasn't in the United States. But um, they find that the disc pressure is not significantly distorted to cause a disc injury for that to happen. I remember watching. Oh God! There was there, it, there's so much misinformation out there. It's insane, and it's usually the popular, um, the popular channels in terms of where you, you turn on daytime TV. You, you read an article in a popular newspaper or a popular magazine, and you hear these terrible false statements, false statements and myths that are perpetuated time and time again from patient to patient, friend to friend, uh, family member to family member, and it means nothing except for passing on that emotion. It it in that has to change, and it's starting to change a little bit, especially with people like Peter O'Sullivan being more popular. But it has to continue to happen. And it's us as clinicians. It's a you know we we uh, we have a huge responsibility in 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 getting out the word, and also just you know challenging. I mean, obviously, this is in a tactful way, and I'm not recommending you challenge your patient's no. perception in a an aggressive tone. But similar to CBT, um, if those of you are familiar with it, you know, it, it's um, you're challenging your thought process. You're challenging your belief system. Uh, and same thing with someone that has back pain. Say, hey, you know, I've heard it. I'm, I'm, I was told that I shouldn't be bending forward. Mm. And I said, well, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I'm going to hurt my back. And mm. I said, well, that's fine. This is straight O'Sullivan. I've saw, Lee yeah. and I saw him in action and having a... A bit of a conversation with the patient in front of a clinic, and it was pretty cool. It, he went into in a in a respectful way, just kind of challenged, you know, listen to the person, mm-hmm. and slowly challenge their um, their belief. And uh, sure enough, within the half hour, forty five minute time frame, without even touching the patient, uh, the patient was actually able to bend over round their spine, not feel the pain that they anticipated they were going to get. Right. So. Um, I, I think powerful. that's huge. Yeah, very powerful. And I, I, I would encourage every human being on the planet to do this, by the way, not just patients. I do it with myself all the time when I talk to my friends, my colleagues, my girlfriend, everybody. I reduce my false statements. I, I do my best to do that. And, and to do that, mm. that's really hard. It's really, really hard, especially in the beginning. Like, you know, let, let's say if you're like, I came home last night really late. I, I took, I had like a 12-hour day of treating patients, working with patients. I took jujitsu in the evening, hour and a half class. I was absolutely drained and I was starving when I got home. So you, everybody knows how you get when you're starving oh, and you're man. tired and you're hungry. So uh, I was talking to my girlfriend when I go home and, and I have to really stop myself from getting really emotional with either something that bothers me or whatever. And then you start to say things that are not true. Like, I can't stand up or I can't do that right now. <laughs> I could absolutely stand up. I'm yeah. standing up as we speak. Oh, you know God. what I mean? So, like, you know, if you, if you find yourself, like, saying, I got knee pain and I can't walk. Well, that's a false statement, most likely. Let's say you walked to wherever you went. You didn't, you know, you didn't float there. You didn't, you didn't levitate over so there. Cool. You most likely walked. It was probably hard for you to walk. That's a more accurate statement. Now, Lee, why is that important to do? Like, that's really annoying. Like, you're being really nitpicky. Well, I hate to break it to everybody, but language and what we hear and what we say has an effect on our brain, thus has an effect on our nervous system that can increase or decrease things that go on in your body like sensations such as pain. 
heart so, rate. Heart rate, blood pressure, all that stuff. Cortisol, epinephrine, adrenaline. All that, <laughs> all the important hormones that, that drive us to be energetic, to be lethargic, to, to be, be relaxed. To, yeah, depressed, relaxed, whatever. All that is driven or at least influenced by what we say and what we do. Right. So if if I keep saying, oh, I can't walk, I can't bend over, I can't bend my knees, I can't do this, then then your you your body will start to elicit that. It will start to make that real. Wow. And these are these are these are psychological. Th- uh, I'm not gonna say tactics, but these are uh, methods that are used in things like uh, uh, didactical behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. Once you start to realize how how often you're doing this, it's, it's also mindfulness, mindfulness and meditation. Um, these have been shown to have really solid changes in how you feel, uh, how you respond to things, uh, what comes out of your mouth. Uh, someone once said to me, the two most important things every human being should focus on, what goes in your mouth and, and what comes, comes out. out. And I totally agree with that. If you can control those two things, you can manage those two things, whew, you'll you be very powerful. You, you, you can manage the amount of sugar you drink or the alcohol you drink, the amount of sugar you take in, you know, what you're saying to people. That, that's a very powerful thing. Very powerful. I was you're making me reflect. I was hangry, hangry <laughs> on, on Sunday, and I told my wife, uh, I can't focus right now. I can't even look at you. I can't even. <laughs> that's amazing. And she, said, and she looked at me. She's like, neither can I. Because we were both, we were, both, we awesome. were past hungry, but. Mm-hmm. And yesterday, very similarly, she was like, can you do me a favor? And uh, I said, I'm not, I can't get off this couch. I was, <laughs> and uh, and I didn't. But um, yeah, Lee, man, you, that's that's a very, very uh, insightful, man. It's spot on, spot on. But all you mm-hmm. clinicians out there, you know, your words carry a lot. You know, you, you we're all in positions that we we elicit, we, we have a huge influences on 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 patients' li- life yeah. and, and their perspective. And, you know, if you know this stuff and you're not presenting it, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's not a good thing, but that's something but, to look yeah, into. Something, yeah. So, and, and then, you know, on the flip side of it, if you think of, uh, <clears throat> you know, the people that do utilize it in a positive way, whether it's a physical therapist or even in fitness, think of the, the kind of cheerleading, you know, the, the coaches that are very, that use positive affirmations constantly mm. that has an effect that has people coming back to you and, and feeling good most importantly feeling good yeah well, Whether, yeah but uh back to the uh the lumbar yeah oh yeah so it kind of what what's important about getting language i i and we brought him up before we both love joe rogan's podcast it's awesome he some I, mean, I think everybody makes this mistake they'll they'll say an anatomical term it'll be inappropriate it, w- it would be inaccurate and then they'll say like they'll mix it up with another thing so like i think he was describing uh a fighter's um uh the discs were so worn down over time the discs fused by themselves which that's most likely not the case and it's not terribly it's not a terrible thing to say that but i i do well i want to stress that the importance of learning these things uh, and getting the language right will also help your rehab. Um, I give the example of 401k. Okay. So like I hate finance stuff. I absolutely hate it. I hate like thinking about like the, you know, savings math and all this stuff. And the reason why I hate it is because in my head it's not real. But as someone always says to me, well, of course it's real. It brings you money. All this stuff. Okay. No. I got you. <laughs> but I'm saying it's not real in the sense that, um, 
you know, people have made up these terms. People have made up these terms. Language. That it's language. Their own language, yep. And if I learned this, if I learned 401k and I was like, oh, it's the 502L. Is that what you're talking about? That's, right. the, that's an inaccurate thing. They, nobody would know what I'm talking about. Same thing goes for your anatomy, right? So learn the proper anatomical terms. It's all just information. It's not magical spells. It's it's just information. It's And if you don't know where to start, then talk to your clinician that you might be seeing or try to go through... Uh, get an appropriate resource. You don't have to go on Google or WebMD. You might have to go get a real, you know, quality anatomy, anatomy like book. Netter. Netter. Yeah, the Frank Netter book, which is the, you know, we were looking at it the entire time we were in PT school. That's probably, what's the other big... Uh, it's Gray's, Gray's Anatomy, I think. That's a little older, but uh, apparently it's been updated versions. And there's another one, too. Um, I don't know the name of it, but I've seen another anatomy book that's really good. Um... But with the yeah, okay. yeah, no, no, but you know those are um, as Lee was saying. Some people throw around. You kind of blend uh, anatomical terms, and then throw their own little spin on it. Yeah. You know, like my F six got herniated. Yeah, I don't know I mean, what F six is. C eight. I've heard C eight. You know, I've heard a lot of fused. You know, um, I have. I have an abnormality. We all, you know, so my disc exploded. Disc exploded, <laughs> protruded. It's pinching a nerve. You know, nerves really don't get pinched. I mean, how? No, that's funny you say that. There's that, there was something written by one of the pain science guys that um, I think there was a research study that shows that doesn't happen at all, right. which is fascinating. I mean, there's actually pulls on the nerve. Of course, there's a change there's in insult. pressure. Yeah, and... there's insult. There, there is. Pr- there could be pressure to a nerve. Right. Uh, a nerve can be encroached upon if you want to think of it that way. And we've learned uh, a theory. How where where is double crush in in the modern um, in the recent literature? I think they still they still have some evidence for that in the sense that um, you have an injury up, let's say for your neck, and there's a, a nerve insult mm-hmm. at the a nerve root. Then that nerve becomes a little bit more compromised all the way down the chain, and it's more subject not to get crushed. I mean, that's a, that. See, right there, that language in itself. Right. That's not what's happening. There's crush. no crush. Right. Crush. There's, right. there's just a sensitivity to that area, and you might get something going on at the wrist. You might get something going on at the elbow, right. and then you, of course, we're all like we're our head, our entire body is connected. So that that's another thing too that we want to talk about is like the our system right now, even taking away everything else, our insurance system, they just want to see, we're just going to view you as an elbow. You're just yeah. a neck right now. You're just a knee. You're not an entire person. You're not an, you don't have a brain. It's a diagnosis <laughs> code. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the idea, nothing in the human body, whether it's your nails or your hair, everything's interconnected. Everything. Right? Everything has a, a layer. Watching, you know, have you seen, uh, sorry to go off topic here, but. Please go. <laughs> <laughs> History Channel has a cool show, uh, Strange Rock or Interesting Rock. Oh, I, I think that. Will Smith is, um, mm. Will Smith is, I guess, talking, you know, presenting it. The host, exactly. Mm-hmm. Think straight. So there was a really cool, he interviews um, astronauts and from, from space, they're looking at, um, they're looking at Earth and. There's something like eight, I, I don't know the number, but it's, let's say, 8,000 lightning strikes every second. Wow. And he said from up there <clears> that the, the the lightning looks like it's actually communicating, right? So they took that concept and they went all the way down to the cellular level. And, mm. and they were talking about how water in Earth, 
is a median for for the stardust to create us, you know, and wow. really cool stuff. So they had this um, this interconnected talk, and I was thinking about what we do as clinicians, and even the course of FRC. They talk about bioflow, I think. Yes. I want to watch. I haven't I haven't seen those videos. I want to watch that. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the creator of FRC, you know, um, Dr. Spina, also has that view and. Pretty cool stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just and uh, working with. So going back to this isolated approach of, hey, your elbow. I mean, this is something that's very antiquated at this point. Very mm-hmm. thirty or forty years old. Of you know, someone elbow, someone's elbow hurts. Let's look at the el- elbow. Mm-hmm. You know, we 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 were trained in a fashion to really look at the whole system. Right. Luckily, I mean, yeah. So you, with the anatomy, for. Um your neck could absolutely start to cause pain at your elbow. Uh, your neck could cause pain at your wrist. You just want to clear that, make sure that's not what's causing your injury elsewhere. So looking at like basic anatomy, you have all the joints in your spine. You have your um, vertebra or your uh, vertebral bodies. And going on the numbers, there's, there's cervical, there's thoracic, there's lumbar, and then there's sacral. And the best way I can remember what was taught to me was breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yes. You usually have breakfast at 7 a.m. There's seven cervical vertebra, and you have lunch at 12 p.m. There's 12 thoracic, thoracic, and then you have five lumbar vertebra, and I believe you have five sacral vertebra. Yeah, Yeah, maybe. It's it's usually fused. They're they're all fused by the time you walk in. Some abnormalities. I've never heard or met anybody that articulates down there but yeah yeah me neither we did have yeah no i mean you usually don't have movement in the sacral vertebra right so now the joints on the uh spine they have all sorts of tissues around them it's not just the spine it's not just the nerves you have uh really thick ligamentous um uh joint capsules as well around the sides of the joints so you have Ligaments in the front of the uh, vertebra, you have ligaments in the back of the vertebra, you have ligaments that go from the bones that kind of poke out of your back, and those are called spinous processes. Um, So ligaments all around, just to keep things very, very stable and very, very strong. That was one thing we do have to say is there has been sufficient evidence to show our spine is inherently stable. It's inherently strong. It is a false statement to say that you have an unstable spine. Um, and a lot to show with, um, there's been arguments to be made about, like, well, spondylolisthesis, and that's some slippage of one or two vertebra, usually in the lumbar spine. It can happen to... All four or five, typically. Mm-hmm. And that's just like an anterior, you know, when looking at a, a lateral view, you see that there's one or two vertebral bodies that kind of are, quote, not in alignment. Not in alignment. <laughs> They're going forward. And that can be concerning because if you think about the anatomy of what's happening, your spinal cord right. is going through your vertebral bodies, right? So it's, there is some... Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, yeah. So it, it, in, there's different levels to it. So spondylolisthesis, and there's different spondies, by the way. You, you can look up spondylosis, spondylysis, spondylolisthesis. That's different. So those are three different ones. Spondylolisthesis is a you, you're taking those a couple of vertebrae and you're moving a little bit forward and that could compromise um, your nerves and or uh, at that point I think it's the quad equine. So, yes, yes, and you would have some pretty significant 
signals. Right. So that, yeah, if you had something going on there and if that slippage was causing an issue, that's when we talk about red flags. Even if, even if you were encroaching upon that area, mm. your nervous system will be on high alert. Uh, right. you, you can, the language people typically use is um, they sense that they can't move in one direction or they brace. Um, it's pretty traumatic. They're, they're pretty, it's, it's, it's rare. It is. But it's, uh, yeah. No, and it usually happens to very specific populations. The only time I've seen it clinically is a handful of times because the person I worked with when I first got out of school, they were, he was connected with um, the, I think, New York City Ballet. So mm-hmm. we saw some very young dancers who had it. And they presented a certain way. And they didn't even have it to the highest level. There's different levels to it. You you, you measure it on the degree of slippage. Yeah, so grade, the grade, right? The, the grade, yeah. So it goes grade zero all the way up to four. Four is like mm, complete, you know, complete movement where you've compromised things. And that's where the, occasionally doctors will surgically correct it. But there's been some arguments with that in the research. So Fuse, right? Yeah, they'll fuse uh-huh. it. They'll just pull it back into place and fuse. Um and and so yeah, you you have dancers who are going into these aggressive extension positions. You have gymnasts who are going into these aggressive extension positions, but they're landing high impact into that. Do that repetitively. You, they're going through a growth usually, usually so they're young. Right. And uh, th- or that, an accident. I'm sorry. No. Yeah. Yeah. And it's usually a, a high one. velocity, a high velocity injury. So falling mm-hmm. off a horse, a motorcycle accident car accident maybe you get hit by a car mm-hmm. um you fell off a ladder you know there's usually um we'll go i think there is a little bit on on this little prerequisite for for ruling that out when one of those things occurs but mm-hmm. um but i guess the bottom line here it would be as lee said inherit inherently stable uh and many and multi-directional <laughs> stability as lee just mentioned there's ligaments in all different angles. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea of one movement or one position being, quote, you know, uh, compromised is a fallacy. Now, if we're used to one position or if we are through adaptate, you know, through maladaptive principles, if you are, let's say, for instance, sitting 12 hours a day, for fifty for fifty years, mm-hmm. you know those those structures we may, we mentioned are going to adapt a certain way, and maybe sure. you do have some limitation. Mm-hmm. But on an average, on on a on a healthy or or an active individual, I don't think um, that's the case. Correct me. Correct. Yeah, one hundred percent. So, like, on, yeah, uh, we're speaking in on averages here in terms of what's going to be applied to the general population. Right. Of course, there's going to be outliers and it's going to be certain situations. And those cases are rare. As we were giving some percentages earlier, something serious going on in the spine that you would require an emergency intervention is, is rare. And that kind of goes to the case here as well. But you do you do you should have some sort of clinician, if you had a suspicion of anything, you have some sort of clinician evaluate you. Now, with when it comes to other parts of the spine, you do have these things called the intervertebral discs. Intervertebral discs, the analogy that I hate mm. is the jelly donut, and there's still clinicians using that. Jelly donut. Because what's, what's the jelly donut like? Is that like a strong structure? No. No. It's kind of, I mean, there's a lot of associations with a jelly donut. Yeah. Um, it's terrible. Soft, 
sugar. You, yes, yeah, it looks. It, you like you. If you sit on that thing, the thing's gonna splatter all over the place. Like <laughs> right, you, right, right. That's not what, the, what your discs are like. This is like a little. I mean, not that I, I've been looking at discs recently, but um, <laughs> but it, it's a pretty strong structure. Super strong. This, yeah, yeah. It's super strong, and, and it. If you want to, from what we understand in terms of what kind of texture or uh, material it's made out of think of like the inside of a baseball when you take a solid baseball and you start to tear it apart it's really ropey it's got cross links that's how firm the outside is then the inside starts to change a little bit there's different types of um, what they call protoglycan there's different types of collagen fibrocartilage right fibrocartilage that is a little softer but it's still very firm it literally has to be torn like it, it really has to be torn with a high velocity force. So, like Eric said before, it takes something like a car accident or a fall from a high height or a, high axial loading. I mean, the mm-hmm. axial load for you to, I mean, you better fall off a building on your head, maybe. You know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they've they've actually done studies on this, and the number that we, we when we were reading this research, we were blown away by what it takes to. Uh, tear uh, an annulus, which is the outside part of the um, of the disc. Let's see, we got that. Uh, da, 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 da. There was actually there we go. Okay, so disc loading it can tolerate. <laughs> this is insane. One disc, by the way, we're not talking about the whole spine. Two point eight to thirteen kilonewtons, or six hundred and thirty to twenty nine hundred pounds. So I mean, I, I it, when we read that, I was surprised by that number because uh, that that that's a lot. We understand that uh, we we both knew that it took a lot to actually tear something completely, and obviously they're basing this on a very healthy, completely uninjured disc, not no wear to it, anything like that, and it's got full water in it, and it's diffusing well, and all these other things. But it's that's still pretty significant. There's obviously some movement to these things because their main purpose is to absorb and rotate and make sure you have smooth movement in your spine. And if you imagine, we, as we described before, this breakfast, lunch, and dinner, the 7, 12, uh, 5, there's a disc between every vertebra. So you have a lot of discs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you got a lot of support. you got a lot of support for compression, rotation, all that fun stuff. Over time, inherently, these things get less efficient. Just like anything else, you you open up a banana, you leave it out there for a while, it starts to get brown, it starts to change its fibers. The same thing goes with any living creature, anything in our body, our hair gets gray, our skin changes as we get older. So when we get older, we lose some water. Um, that texture that we were talking about before on the material on the outside of the disc, it starts to get less resilient. And especially if you've been putting it through certain stresses through many, many years and or had multiple ac- car accidents, let's say. Then it becomes a little less resilient. Yeah, and if you think of it, I mean, I hate to compare the spine to a tire, <laughs> but uh, I mean, aging is wear and tear, and right. depending on how you treat those tires, where you drive, how fast you drive, how often you drive, um, a lot of factors mm. to the wear and tear, and and there's a there's probably a little bit of a genetic. Fa- I mean, there's many factors, factors that I I, I can't even wrap my head around. Yeah, but the as Lee said, I mean, looking at it from an anatomical perspective, with age, we're going to lose some height, we're going to lose some water, we're going to lose some mobility. All of those things are a natural course. Right. 
Now, um, uh, one of our fellow colleagues, uh, Dr. Ryan Chow, he's a mm -hmm. fellow yep. physical therapist. He had some personal experience with an individual who's a, power, a famous powerlifter who's back powerlifting. And he showed me this picture of this MRI of this powerlifter that was famously treated by Stuart McGill, mm. that uh, back specialist out in Canada. Um, so he had an injury. Mm. And uh, what came back on the uh, MRI, and he wrote a book, the powerlifter wrote a book on this. So it, this is all public. Uh, the book is called Gift of Injury. Um, the powerlifter's name, I believe, is Brian Carroll. Uh, both Eric and I are looking at it right now, but uh, as a clinician, when we look at this, we get kind of taken back because mm -hmm. one of the vertebrae looks completely dismantled and worn down and fractured, and we can't even see a disc um, mm -hmm. above and below that vertebrae. So I would look at that and be pretty like, wow, this this guy's got... I don't can't think, walk. Yeah, he can't walk. He can't, can't do certain things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but apparently... There was no surgery done. He saw this guy, Stuart McGill, who is very well known, and um, had complete recovery. Now, in the book, this is all outlined. So we have the before MRI, and then after uh, several years of recovery with no surgery, hmm. those discs came back. Wow. Those that's end cool, plates man. of the vertebrae that were previously fractured, they repaired themselves. Now, he's not a super young guy. He's not 18 years old. He's not 20 That's years cool. old. That is, you got to send me that. That yeah. is really significant. Now, I mean, what this was about was, or which this is the point of this is, even if you have severe injury to a disc or like you get an MRI and you say like, well, you have severe degenerative joint disease, which we've discussed before, gets very common as we get older, um, or severe arthritis or you have no discs, that is not the end of your back. That that is there's no there's no immediate need for an emergency surgery such as like an I should say uh, an aggressive surgery such as like a fusion or laminectomy uh, or laminectomy or, or whatever disc replacement and that's in the absence of neurosymptoms so we're talking without the uh, the combination of like frank motor weakness severe uh, neuro damage where you're, you lost the sensation things like that without that then the the idea of a, a, an aggressive back surgery to quote repair or fix this is usually unnecessary. Right. Um, and there are cases like this all around. Like th this was a case that I found interesting because this was an active individual, um, and she, it, it, visually, this MRI. You know, as a clinician, when we look at this, we get pretty concerned because we can't even see any highlighted water in those discs. We can't even actually see a disc. And tip, you know, and then many. In many, I mean, I, I could use anecdotally, I'll, I'll say, I recall my mom, you know, a few years back, she had a, uh, she had a back problem and she had an MRI and she said, oh my God, I saw my spine and it was scary. Mm -hmm. And I said, what was scary about it? Oh, there was all these black, there was all this water and there was all this, I was lacking water and I was... And at the time, you know, it's it's different when it's your mom, you know, and I, sure. I wasn't as tactful. And I said, that's fine. I just, you're right, you know, you're, you're right. You know, I, I wasn't as tactful. And she was like, thanks. That's making me feel. So I, I didn't use my pain science on mom. But, um, but yeah, it's a scary situation when you go to a, a doctor's office and you see this. And, you know, some, some doctors may instill fear. Some may not. Right. Um, some may refer you right then and there. A, 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 
something like that, they'll send you straight to a surgeon. I'm right. sure. I mean, I've had, I've had, had countless of uh, patients that had maybe not as severe as that and say, hey, let's get a surgical consult. Now. Yeah. And I, I think, Eric, and I know myself, I've had a handful of cases where the opposite is true, where they don't have a lot of pain, but they have some severe neurological compromise. And then they go get an MRI and they show that exact correlation between that neurocompromise or that nerve root and either a disc injury or something right. else going on. And we're like, yeah, well, it, you know, they usually want you to try conservative management first. Right. Try a couple weeks of it. There is the risk if it's severe. Well, we should say there are red flags for something that you need emergency surgery. So if you're talking about something called quadriquine syndrome, which is basically when our spine um, goes all the way down, I believe it's L3 when it starts to turn into the quadriquine. Yes, 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 yes. And that means you have the spinal cord, and then around L3, there's um, a little separation where your nerves start to sep- uh, spill thin out. Thin out, and t- right. Yeah, thin out, and it, it looks like a horse's tail. Right. I, I think that's what quadriquine right, means, right? right? Um, so then... When you get an injury in, let's say if you're in a car accident and they ask you these questions like, are you having trouble um, with bowel and bladder? Are you unable to retain urine or your feces? Um, do you have saddle paresthesias, which is numbness kind of underneath your, your groin there? Um, Difficulty walking or inability to walk. Right. Uh, change in your gait. Foot drop. Foot drop. And foot drop, for I've heard people's falsely say what it is, it, it, it's a strict neurological compromise of your ability to raise your foot up. So while you walk, because you're unable to raise your foot up, you start to drag your top of your foot, and you can't control that. It's not you just have like a little weakness there, and like let's say years down the line, you you have a certain wear on your toe or something like that. You usually have a complete foot drop. That's, that's a foot drop. Yeah, I have an interesting case for you. Mm. I have a, a patient right now I'm working with that I won't go too much into his medical history, but he has a foot drop only when he's tired. Mm. So it's more of a fatigability situation. And obviously they ruled out Clodoquina. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a pretty complex situation. He, I think he has an in, he had an insult to his femoral nerve um, due to growth. It was a pretty complex case. But his foot drop is controlled consciously when he is cued on heel to toe, picking up his foot, engaging his abdominal, re- you know, all postural control. So he could control that mm. up until he can't and he starts fatigued. to fatigue. So it may, you know, it, it, his, it may or may not, you know, uh, question to you. I mean, in that case, mm. I mean, he doesn't need an AFO. No. Um but this is—he's right on the fence, right? I mean, yeah. he doesn't have any—he doesn't have any other red flags. So, you know, and the, and the referring physician is um, is smart enough or savvy enough not to jump the gun and send this guy, you know, to surgery. surgery. Yeah, yeah, I, that those cases are interesting. I've had one case like that, and their compromise was at the fibular head, and they ended up getting a, a foot drop and. Um, you, it depends. Like, let's say if they go get a nerve conduction velocity test. That'd be crazy, man. I was like, damn, did I check that? I got to <laughs> check that. I got to check that. Oh, Just man, that's going to be in the clinic. I got to put make a note. There you uh, go. Damn. I, I've, you know, I've hit the ankle. I've done tons of... I'm sorry. No, sorry to, no. I'm sorry, sorry to go off. That's all right. I've, I have been working that ankle um, with a little mulligan, mm-hmm. but I should grab the fib head. Yeah, see if there's any uh, major... 
things going on, the mobility deficits or anything like that. But if, like, let's say if they do a nerve conduction velocity test and they, they shoot a signal down that nerve and they find an extreme latency and they can put it in a category of certain nerve damage, then you have those categories of, um, I, I don't remember the exact terms, you have like the most basic, which is neuropraxia. The end of it is like ne- neurometrosis or right. whatever. But basically, it's a Wallerian degeneration. Yes. So when a nerve is damaged long enough, then you're going to have like a backtrack of damage. There was actually a famous football player who had some ler- nerve damage, and he made it public how long it was going to take for him to get back. And what it was is when you uh, damage a nerve significantly and it starts to die, oh, not die, it starts to uh, technically degenerate in terms of its sheaths around it, and it starts to go backwards, and it's it's a crazy number where like uh, like a centimeter a day or something like that or a month or whatever it is. And then if you start to rehab it and or rest it and you don't cause that compromise anymore, it will go back the other way. It will start to regenerate, but it takes equally as long, if not a little longer. So that's the thing about nerves. So if there's like a, a, a really focal nerve injury, you have a very long time of recovery and or um, it, you'd have to really do all these other tests like a nerve con- conduction velocity, MRI, CT EMG, scan, whatever, EMG. EMG. Um, you have to find that out. So, like that—that that would be step one: is find out the level of of degeneration. Is there is there an actual um, case for it to come back, or if there's is there any damage there? And if there is, then and with the nerve, with the nerve stuff, with the nerve conduction or the EMG in particular, I had a recent. I just had a a, a big uh, rush recently of of at least four or five patients that are showing frank weaknesses, mm. uh, whether it's upper extremity or lower extremity. And one that had an upper extremity situation um, had an EMG d- test, and the doctor was savvy enough to tell the woman that, hey, you know, I know that, you know, obviously you have neural symptoms, mm. but um, it, it, they're not significant enough. Mm. They're not significant enough to come up. So that even with these EMG studies and the nerve conduction, unless it's really really bad there's a there's probably a threshold which i'm not familiar with mm-hmm. but there's a th- it's very you know what what perceptually someone's going through could be horrible but that these tests won't show it unless there's a complete neuropraxia of some sort interesting yeah yeah but it, it pretty interesting stuff um but the nerves d- typically do take a nerve injury typically does take longer than any other yeah. tissue in the body right and then if you think of um the from pain science and neuroscience, uh, how that's linked into our nervous system. You know, who knows whether, you know, it's something. It's a little humunculus smudge, or you know. Yeah, that's the other thing too. Is they don't. Uh, when I say they, we're talking about researchers, scientists. There's not a clear understanding of what's um, going on with things like that. Uh, what we learned in school, again, ahead of our uh, our teachers were ahead of their time. We saw this video on phantom pain. Do you remember this? Yeah, yeah. Dr. V. Ramachandran. Oh, that was great. That was great. He apparently spearheaded the uh, research on phantom limb pain and how it connected with brain smudging and things like that. And the famous case that they were going over, what he, what he was able to prove was this gentleman who had a um, below elbow amputation. All right. And... He had some smudging of that. If, you, if you're not familiar with what the homunculus is, it's the brain's representation of all of our 
um, body parts like our arm, our fingers, our genitals, our lips, uh, hands, feet, everything. Um, and so there's a certain representation on our, our cortical map or our, our, I think it's mainly the it's the entire brain or right, is it just right. the, yeah. Or at least a, a part of our brain, you know, part of our brain that represents everything. Maybe you know? it's the motor and the, the sensory, maybe in the yes. frontal cortex. So, um, yeah, so this guy, uh, since he had lost that part of his limb, that representation now smudged over to his face. Mm. So every time he shaved, he had severe arm pain. And it was this really, you know, strange thing where the brain was like, where the frig is your arm? Or, you know, we're going to cause you this this kind of uh, danger response, which is this severe pain. So what uh, Dr. Ramachandran uh, trialed was Mirabox therapy. And so if you're not familiar with Mirabox therapy, cool. yeah, he, he, he took his... Um, non-involved arm, which was intact, and he put the mirror behind the involved, and so when the guy looked in the mirror, he was able to see the hand that he didn't have anymore, and then he just did certain exercises to reinforce the sensation, things like that, and so then that smudge started to go away, and sure enough, that phantom pain reduced, and then it got eliminated. So then they started to apply, the the people who were really smart, like David Butler and Lermere Mosley, they started to apply that same concept to pain, this generalized pain without having the loss of a limb. And it's worked incredibly. Yeah, I think um, I definitely, that time, there was a time where uh, Lee and I, back in the days where we were doing a lot of mirror stuff, yeah. even even post-operatively, for patients, let's say a shoulder pain, shoulder uh, labral repair or shoulder a rotator cuff repair where patients had a certain limitation on their range of motion mm. far out of their surgery, we would use the mirror box to block the affected arm mm. and get 20, 30, 40 degrees more uh, range of motion. I mean, uh, complex pain, uh, excuse me, complex regional pain syndrome had a couple of patients with uh, lower extremity and upper extremity as well mm -hmm. and we were using mirror box uh, whether it was just having the patient perform ADLs picking stuff up watching their arm just kind of reminding that their arm arm is working mm -hmm. but we I've seen mirror box therapy um, work on, on various levels and it's really Really empowering for the patient. I mean, it's it's, it's a great. It could be a great tool mm -hmm. that's beyond just um, working with amputations or neuro or, or stroke patients. Yeah, and I think it also ties us into things that we never even thought about before, and then the connections. And it also, for me, it made me start to think about all right, what's driving certain things. And I I do think this is going to be more the future of yes. our injuries industry where. They're going to get better at neuroscience. They're going to find more things out, and our treatment uh, methods are going to change again in a good way, and they're going to find out the brain has way more to do with how we feel and how we operate than we originally thought. Again, we're not just our joints. We're an entire body with hormones getting released, with synapses firing, with uh, you know certain smells that we smell or what we hear, what we see. Everything that's that's what really encompasses us and how we feel and how what we do. It's really interesting, um, but yeah. So, in terms of going back to the lower back, um, we talked about CFT, red flag, Stuart McGill, um, and then movements available. So w w I briefly mentioned it before with the movements, but 
when it comes to bending over and pick, picking something up, it's already been debunked. It, this is solid now in terms of it's not a question and we're not rogue therapists for thinking this. Right. Um, when you go to pick something up and if you don't have your back completely extended or flat, uh, <laughs> you're going to injure your back. That's not the case. So they, They've done countless studies on this. And actually, it's interesting. Stuart McGill because he's such a, mecha- a pathomechanical guy. He still right. is. I mean, I, I don't know. I think he's still he's retired now. I think. Well, I mean, he's core stability. He's core stability. Yeah. He's got the big three exercises, which are like side planks and bird right. dogs, stuff right. like that. Right. But him and Peter O'Sullivan have chatted. And actually, if you follow Peter O'Sullivan on, on Twitter, he mentioned, he's like, yeah, I've talked to Stuart about this. And I would, I would, be, I would love to be a fly on the wall in that, oh. in that conversation because Too you have two of the most um, – prestigious individuals on the opposite side of the spectrum going into this idea of uh, back pain and back injury. And then they're talking about <clears throat> core stability, which is another myth, by the way. Yes. And yes. Th- that's, you know, for me as a fitness trainer and a strength conditioning guy, that was hard for me to swallow. Yes. Because we, we, the whole, I mean, this whole core engagement, um, core stability, it's more... I think it's more of a neural thing than an actual strength or stability thing. Right. I think it has to do with sequential firing of the body mm-hmm. and what uh, in a in a normal like, in a normal whatever the normal is, right? Normal's <laughs> relative, but in, in a pain-free individual that goes about their life, I do believe there's a sequential order of movement, stability um that moves through the body. And I think when correct me if I'm wrong here, mm-hmm. but when someone is injured um, I think that sequential order is jumbled. Yeah. And um, in order, just I'll use uh, taking a step, for instance. So you do some studies, you could see that there's some kind of uh, tension created in the, in the in the system, let's say in the trunk, mm-hmm. um, followed by some kind of hip ac- activation into a quad, into your post-tib, into your first toe. Um, let's say that that... Yeah, so, um, well, this is interesting you say that because if you talk to someone like Peter O'Sullivan... What you're describing is just fear response. So the body going into this, um, they know they're injured, they're either in pain or they've been told that they're injured, they have an MRI and stuff like that. So they they do all those motor patterns because they're injured and they're protecting themselves. Right, right, right. So his his idea is you go at it from the root. So you talk to them about, all right, well, or you go through certain things. You rule out the red flags, you go through the movement patterns. You say, well, you're most likely moving because of this, this, and this. And then what are your fears about this? And and you have to go through and have them understand that some of them might not, you might not have to be fearful of these things. You know, what you're describing is totally normal. And that's supposed to reduce your fear level. It's supposed to change the way you move. Over time, you have them move more in a sense that like, all right, go back to your normal routine. That's going to reduce that motor pattern that might be dysfunctional or altered. Um but then if you talk to someone more pathoanatomical than that sequential firing, focusing on that and then reducing their pain, pain science guys would say that's more neuromodulation. Yes. So you, yes. you change the locus of, of control or the, the actual the focus of, um, all right, I'm not focusing on my back. I'm going from... Working on my heel. Right. I mean, heel yeah. strike. Or, heel right. strike, breathing. And that, that goes into the whole PRI thing right. when... There's actual focus on breathing. It's not necessarily a mechanical change. It's more of a neuro change that you could do that with almost anything. And that's why a lot of studies will show that something like Pilates 
helps with acute back pain very well because there's so much focus like, oh, you have to blah, 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 blah. But mechanically, it's not necessarily like the big thing. They went into this in FRC that neurotrix are relatively easy. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love that. So they went into neurotrix being easy. But, you know, they walk out of the door and they're back in with the same situation. So that neurotrix, I think, provides uh, a window of opportunity it's evidence to the patient, whoa, there was a change here. They have an aha moment. Right. And that goes into like that, you know, pain. Oh. Yeah, you, now you, you let them know, hey, there's evidence. You, you feel a little better. You're moving a little different. You're engaging different things. You mm-hmm. see how that feels. But I think the, the real trick or not even trick, the real uh, challenge for all of us is how do we give that person some tools to be able to replicate that when they're out of the clinic? Right. No, you know, and and it's some of them are easier than others, but most of them is like neuromodulation. You know, you're just telling them, hey, when your knee hurts, yeah, it's. Yeah. And that's why they're finding breathing works so well because they can focus on their breathing when they do something, exactly. And then they can alter how they feel, and and that's a huge thing. It's it's and there's nothing. A lot of people get taken back with this stuff, or they they get defensive about it because. They it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because they don't know the full story, and that's that's fine. I I was I was that exact person, and I was taken back by this stuff for years. And as a clinician, and now I'm starting to uh, read more, see more of it, and apply it, and it's it's working so well. And I and I think it's so important to to pass on. Um, what was I going to say with the the movement too? The core stability. Oh, the, the core, yeah, stability. core stability being. Yeah. yeah. So what we're talking about is like, and I'm sure everyone t- says it like, well, first of all, I hate the word core. It's probably one mm-hmm. of my hated hated words next to. Belly. Uh, belly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's an inherent. Um, stomach. It, it, well, it, there's like <laughs> no meaning behind it. At this point, it's thrown around so much. Nobody knows what the frig core is. Right. If you ask someone, what's your core? And they, they can't explain. They just, like, put their hand on their stomach. <laughs> well, if, if what they're trying to say is your trunk or your um, actual, I, I, I think canister. that one of the, yeah, exactly, yeah. the canister. That's the best analogy because it encompasses many things, like your ability to uh, be strong under certain conditions using very deep tissues. So we're talking about on the bottom is the pelvic floor. On the top, you got the diaphragm, which is really big. A lot of if, if you look up an anatomy book, what a diaphragm looks like, it's huge. It's, and what it interconnects with, yeah. it's pretty amazing. Your ribs, your hip flexor, your obli- everything, everything, and it's it, a- and it's got it. It creates a hiatus that your esophagus goes through, your aorta goes through, all these things. It's, it's very very cool. Um, on, on your sides, you have your obliques. I'm sure everyone's heard of obliques because of men's fitness and women's fitness, everything. Um, but you have all you have all those tissues working together. Then you have the breathing. You have the breath, those tissues, pressure, and then uh, certain positions. Now, one thing I did want to talk about: core stability with pain is different from um, core stability or posture with performance. So, uh, <laughs> our our. our our instructor at Henzo, John Danner, had an incredible post about posture. And I do agree with him on this, you know, mechanically. Uh, and I think he knows this stuff. That's why he's able to put everything together. He, he knows anatomy. He knows physiology. And, of course, he's a philosopher, so he's able to, like, tie things in as a system. Um, but if you're fighting or if you're, let's say, if you're doing jujitsu and you're trying to do a guard pass, you're not going to be able to 
uh, prop yourself up properly without having a certain posture. So I think when you talk about core stability for performance or trunk stability for performance, um, that's going to be different from versus pain. Yes, and that, that could tie into, as we were talking about in the uh, earlier in the podcast, running. Mm. Um, there's a whole uh, school of thought, Chi Running actually is a mm. book, that um, this guy's claim to fame is really taking a look at running posture mm-hmm. and how that affects breathing, uh, stabilization, or, or actually just just flow. Mm-hmm. I want to say flow, but yeah, you look at uh, look at most top performers and in, in, in most uh, you know, look at the, look at their posture, yeah, <laughs> uh, as they're moving. So. But Danaher, what was um his thing um yeah. with the with uh, with posture being kind of critical, right? Yeah, he highlighted. Um, I think he had a picture of um, George St. Pierre, mm. and um, it was it, this post was shared quite a bit amongst other people. There's actually there's this guy who I follow. Or I don't follow him anymore. Um, you took him off your list. <laughs> 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 well, he was, it was just hard to read his post in the sense he it was very inflammatory. Oh, I got um, you. I got he's you. like 100% posture driven, 100% biomechanical driven. Got it, got it. And there's nothing, there's, he's got great stuff with exercises. Um, it's called functional patterns. And he highlighted, actually, I'll go to him because then I'll be able to distinguish. That's um, funny. The today in class, um, Igor mentioned that as well. Uh, what was he was, that? He was saying posture? posture. He was like, you know, you guys are trying to pass and you're down here. He was talking about, you know, uh, for those of you familiar with jiu-jitsu, when you're in someone's guard and they're pulling you down, breaking your posture, you know, it, it's pointless to try to pass because you're not in a position mm-hmm. to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, talking to Lee about being in certain positions and the difficulty in breathing when someone's trying to pull you down or they have their knee or hand in your diaphragm as you're trying to move around um that 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 will change everything that'll That's change it. performance yeah 100 percent. i was last night i was i was partnered up with a guy who was much taller than me and he immediately swept me got knee on belly held it there i felt like 10 minutes and i felt like i was gonna lose whatever was in my stomach and i was like all right i'm waiting for you to do something so I can try to get out. Oh, that's the purpose. Yeah. But I couldn't move. I mean, he didn't have too much of, you know, neon belly, be, neon belly is an extremely um, dominant position, and you can't really do anything to get With out. With the pull, too, right? The pull. Yeah, he, he was doing a good pull, too. Yeah. Uh, so this this post by John Denner has a picture of uh, George St. Pierre doing a single leg takedown, and I'll just, I'll, I won't read the whole thing but I'll read the capitalized stuff. Even the greatest strength will be undermined by failures in posture when applied to a given task. I totally agree. So if you start to change <clears throat> your your position, and one case that I always used to talk about with pa- Patrick Lyons mm. when before I really got a, a hold of pain science and he would challenge us with certain things, I was like, what about what we learned about swallowing? So I don't know if you remember, like we had a small... Um, when we did our hospital or when they were focusing on hospital rehab and like working with OTs and things like that, you'd have to, if you're, you have, you're working with someone who's got really weak 
neck flexors, extensors, right. you have to help them position their neck to, to swallow. So, like, if you look all the way up, you're not going to be able to swallow. Right. You right. have right. to be, keep yourself rather neutral, if not a little bit flexed, I think. Um, so I, 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 I thought, I said to him, I was like, why can't you apply that to your hip? Your hip has to be in a certain position for, let's say, your glute max to fire 100%. And right. he was able to dispel that a little bit. But I do feel like there is a length tension relationship that talks about like yes. active and passive insufficiency. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and there's, there's positions in which certain muscles, I do believe, uh, are working inefficiently. Right. And and uh, and we see this all day. We see this all day with patients. And again, uh, going into posture as a myth, you know, they really, you know, posture is a very relative thing. You know, whether you're talking, you know, to a fighter that's uh, talking about a fighter or you're talking about grandma, uh, posture is a, is a very relative thing. Um, and I, I would say let go of the fact that you've been told your posture is going to cause you pain. I, I would let go of that. You, One would be a little bit more correct in saying your postures dictate efficiencies. So, right. so you can have inefficiencies and you can have efficiencies. So if you have someone who's inefficiently sitting at their desk all day long, their tissues aren't going to tolerate it as well as either change in posture or um, it's usually a change in posture is the best thing if you have to sit for a while. Get up. Um, <laughs> right, just get up, walk around. Just get up. Walk towards the door, open the door, leave, and never go back. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> that was a funny joke about the nine to five job, but um, yeah, no. In terms of performance, you do have to adjust those inefficiencies because if you keep those inefficiencies, you're either not going to be able to perform that task, or that task is is not going to be strong. Right. So if you're doing something that requires technique and strength, which usually every sport does, you're going to be left behind a little bit. Um, so I, that, that would be my advice in terms of rethinking what posture means. And I, I, just to give you some examples, there's, there's still some therapists that I work with on a part-time basis who are a hundred percent behind the, the posture fear mongering bandwagon. And, and they just, they, so all of their patients are walking around like they got something stuck up their, up their butt. Like mm. it's just completely stiff and everything that well, they're doing is, is like a robot. Yeah. O'Sullivan would argue that. You know this kind of talk. You know this kind of um, fear mongering mm-hmm. um, will cause more pain because people oh, are tense. People are hyper vigilant about their posture. Oh, my posture's bad. And he and, uh, he's he's proven this through research, by the way. Ironically, do you know who the the group of people started this core stability thing and pain and posture? I don't know. Ironically, it was the Australians, or what they call the. The Queensland Mafia, wow. Joel and Richardson, that, back in the 70s, they did that study on acute low back pain, and they have them raise their arm really fast, and the EMGs on the, yes. the, quote, deep core muscles or the transverse abdominis. So what they found was, at the time, and apparently they were misinterpreted the results. Someone told me that, and I, I remember reading it over, and I didn't understand what they, they were talking about. But the, there's this group of um, professors in Queensland, Australia, who worked at the Queensland University for Physical Therapy, um, Joel and Richardson, and they did this a study on acute uh, patients with acute back pain, and they put EMGs or ultrasound, uh, diagnostic ultrasound on their abdominal wall looking for a muscle thickness and muscle firing, and they had them raise their arm very quickly, and they found in the patients who had acute back pain had a, a delayed firing in those muscles. So then they deduced that 
core strength or that core stability was less in the people with back pain. That spread like wildfire, and apparently that started one of the things that started this whole um, frenzy on core stability. Now you have someone like Peter O'Sullivan who's, who's replicating that research, and they're actually showing the opposite, where there's an overfiring of their deep core muscles, and they're all just – they can't turn them off, actually. There's no relaxation. Why – Going into the psoas, going into paraspinals, yes, yes. gives people a huge relief. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's interesting. That yeah. is very cool. And it, it, I've heard this before from really skilled clinicians at courses, and they're like, there's actually a better, there's a, a more adequate connection to injury, uh, to the inability to relax a movement or relax a joint. And I totally agree with that. All the athletes that I've seen, very high-level athletes, we're talking, uh, let's say, jujitsu or, or like ballet or uh, gymnasts, they they have a little bit more awareness in their body. If I grab any of the part of their body parts and I say, I need you to relax this or go limp, mm. they immediately are able to do it without me saying it twice. When you have someone who is very unaware of their body and have never moved they have a lot of trouble. They'll be like, oh, my God, I feel like I'm relaxed. I'm relaxed. Relax. I'm good. I'm relaxed. <laughs> Can't relax. No, it's it's very interesting you say that. I mean, that ties into FRC, ties into Strong First. Yeah. Um, and listening to Pavel, uh, he, he's huge on that on-off switch. Tension and relaxation. And if a lot of top performers, they're able to... You look at a basketball player taking a jump shot, perfect example. Mm, very relaxed. And look what they do. Usually breathing. That's right. Yeah, like a um yeah, little focus, you know, it's just like focus, <laughs> boom. They they have to shut their system down. Yeah. Uh, but with jujitsu for sure, I mean, uh, we've been cued we've been cued many times and countless. I'm still Don't working panic. on it. Don't, Don't panic. Don't panic. And and you could and and not to for those who to take jujitsu. Uh, not to hold somebody in your guard For so too tight, long. too long, or too tight, yeah. or you know, just don't use the tension when you don't need to. I do have to say, when I first started, a sixty-minute white belt class would kill me for the rest of the day, and that lasted for several months. I now take the um, blue belt or the purple belt classes, and they're a lot longer, a lot more rolling. I feel way less tired afterwards, and Come I, I've learned. And, and one of the actual, one of the black belts said to me in the locker room. Yesterday, he was like, he, he, he sometimes, he was older. He's like, you have to train. Uh, what did he say? And I loved it because it was perfect for us. Uh, you have to tra- train intelligently. You have to train tactfully. Um, he's like, sometimes I let people pass my guard. Then I, I have to get myself out of the situation. But also, I'm not straining the whole time. And then sometimes, I, the next round, I won't let them pass my guard. So I think I think that's super important if you're in the controlled environment well to, to I, do I that. had a little bit of a reverse in the last couple of weeks <laughs> yeah. my finger's feeling a lot better mm. um i broke my finger sprained my let's say i sprained my finger oh, you broke it I broke think. a little little break a little <laughs> a little evulsion fracture but uh it's feeling a lot better and it's a lot more mobile and i'm working with larger individuals last week mm. and i was holding this i mean i was holding them where i needed to hold them but I, I told myself I, I'm, I'm veering into grip land because I, I feel strong mm. and I could hold certain people in certain positions, but it's costly. Definitely. <laughs> so going back to back pain, actually relaxing the core uh, and relaxing, I mean, getting people not to hold their posture up so much, yeah. they'll probably uh, they'll feel a lot better. Um, 
again, uh, posture is really a, a relative thing, and I don't think there's any textbook definition on what, quote, optimal posture is. It really depends on, on what you're trying to do with this posture. Right. And think more of it inefficiencies and efficiencies. Now, let's say if you have back pain um, and you don't have the neurosymptoms that we were talking about earlier, be reassured that it's a very common thing to have happen. I mean, 80% of the population goes through it. Um, there's many different causes for it. But right now, one of the biggest causes for nonspecific, non-neurological back pain is usually stress and fear. And, and if you don't believe that, that's okay. It's, it's, it's right now, it's, it's being studied. And what we talked about pain science, that has a, a larger to do with um, what you feel versus the mechanical part of it. Um, now, if you do have neuroscience, like let's say, well, I have back pain and I have pain going on my leg. All right. So th- I would say get uh, an assessment from a clinician. And if you don't know where to start, you you can go to the doctor if you like. But it, I would recommend going to see like a movement clinician, either a physical therapist or if you have a, a quality chiropractor to see whatever you want. Absolutely. Um, but that can be just uh, an extension of what's going on in your back. And it might be, again, an issue with nerve tension and not necessarily like an insult to a disc. Um, so that might not require surgical intervention. Usually, and th- oh, this is interesting too, um, I know we're limited on time, but the, uh, I can't remember which exact association it was, but the major orthopedic spinal association of America released, I think, either 2017 or 2018, they will no longer, it's no longer best practice to perform a fusion on the lumbar spine unless, um, there were two stipulations. I think they said on nonspecific low back pain. So something like in that uh, category. It's coming from people, I mean, that, that's great to hear because that's mm-hmm. coming from people that make a living. Obviously, you know, that's their tool is surgery, you know. Um, right. And, uh you know, for all those clinicians that may be listening, whether it's a doctor or a physical therapist, we're not trying to, if someone's not privy to this kind of pain science, um, they're only using their training, right? They're only using their experience, but there's enough information out there now, research, not information, there's enough data that's being collected that, uh, again, it's it's great to see that, that yeah. orthopedic surgeons are... And, and the big thing, to, what was great is for me was fusion is such an aggressive surgery. You When you get a fusion surgery, which I haven't seen in a while, by the way, that, that's been quite a I bit of... Seen, I haven't Yeah, I would say early on in my career, even when I was volunteering, it was, it was about prevalent. 10, 15 years ago, it was pretty pretty prevalent. And mm-hmm. if you want to, going back to the anatomy that Lee mentioned, you know, uh, 7, 12, 5, uh, imagine taking two of the five... And putting, you know, putting a little cage around them or mm. putting a couple of screws in them, now these two joints are no longer moving. Mm-hmm. Typically, what we see clinically is the segments above and below have to now move a little extra. So what you yeah. see there is a little extra wear and tear, um, more wear and tear than if the fusion wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, so people... Someone described it as a Band-Aid. Someone described it as a Band-Aid, so you create this false sense of stability. Right. Um, 
Secondly, it's pretty traumatic. You're having spinal surgery. Obviously, you're going under the anesthesia. There's a, a, a huge. There's a, there's there's risk involved here. There's risk huge. involved. Um, and often, you know, people still have neuropathy. They'll still have neurological symptoms, which, again, goes into could go into the whole phantom pain. Could go into phantom limb pain because typically patients that go this route have been dealing with it for a while. Mm-hmm. And those who jump into the acuteness of it. Uh, you know, they often find that months or years later, they may be in the same situation. So, right. but again, fusions are not typical now. In some cases, fusion is absolutely necessary, right? right. If, if those red flags are, are present and, or there's a, God forbid, of, a, of some kind of um, traumatic injury scheme, who knows, traumatic injury where that disc literally... Well, the ver- vertebrae usually, mm-hmm. like we've we known people who had... Um... Uh, patients uh, complete fractures of the vertebrae from a high fall or whatever it may be, and then their spinal cord is in compromise. That right. is a serious situation. Obviously, we're talking about um, tetraplegia or right. paraplegia. Right. So they have to get that under control. So not only do they have to fixate the vertebra that is shattered, but they have to stabilize it above and below because pieces of that either can injure the spinal cord or it can cause uh, more degeneration around that area. So that those are extreme cases, and that when one thinks about a back injury, one should have that in mind. Usually, there's there's a calming. There should be a calming uh, reassurance. Like I, I gave this analogy to Eric one time. If I were to have a bad day or something, and I'm complaining about it, worst thing that happened to me right now, in, in general, is like I get less sleep. Uh, I get home late. Have to wake up early. Oh, man. And stress sounds like a normal week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and as a, in a big scheme, that's not that stressful. You know, oh, I mean, man. things can be a lot worse. And oh, we're very lucky to have a roof over our head and, and food to eat and things like that. And we're very fortunate, and that 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 calms me. No, oh, sure. sure. And one going back to stress and back pain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we are going to hit cervical. We might hit it next. Uh, what we have to discuss, but. Um, <laughs> Neck and back pain, my understanding is these stress hormones that flow through our body, uh, typically they attack nervous tissue, right? So those stress hormones typically, so if you do have somewhat of a compromise or history of back pain, it's just like gasoline to the system, stress. You know, for some it attacks their neck, some some it attacks their back, maybe maybe it's some hip, maybe it's their skin, whatever it is, but stress kills. Stress kills. It does, and it, and it will go after those things that are compromised or have been compromised in the past. Um, so yeah, I, I would say to to leave it off on a positive note, back pain, general back pain. Be hopeful that it's going to get better. You might have recurrences, and when they equate flare-ups, they're usually recurrences because you're not addressing other things such as fear and stress and stress management and being able to. Uh, manage uh, how much sleep you're getting in a week, um, what kind of diet you're having, hydration, and then movement. Movement's huge. I was going to, you know, and movement movement plays a lot of factors. You know, movement could improve your strength, your mobility. Movement's also evidence, uh, well, pain, I don't want to use a pain-free, but certain movements or certain, if you go to your skilled clinicians, there's certain movements that are evidence for the brain Mm. that, won't trigger a pain response. And and the brain, when you have a chronic condition, chronic lower back pain, I've always been taught through various pain science uh, modules that one has to use movement 
as something to slow to to kind of disable the response the pain the 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 nervous modulate mm-hmm. the pain response. Mm-hmm. So, so as Lee said, movement's probably one of the most important things um, out of that whole spectrum. One hundred percent, and understand that usually the movement that is a, is prescribed, hopefully by a skilled clinician, skilled clinician, will be novel and non-threatening, and that will reduce your your pain response. Novel and non-threatening. That's right. We're signing off. All right. Thank you for listening. Few good physios. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to A Few Good Physios. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Follow us each week while we interview guests and have clinical commentary 